brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today I'm going to be talking to Maxine Mei-Fung Chung, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist and writer who lectures on gender and sexuality, trauma and attachment theory. Her 2020 novel, The Eighth Girl, was optioned for Netflix by Jason Bateman and Michael Costigan. And her first non-fiction book, What Women Want, is out now. It's a deeply compassionate book which explores the inner lives and desires of seven women Maxine has worked with as a therapist and which meticulously examines the question of what women want. Maxine, it's great to have you on the Penguin podcast today. Thanks, Izzy. It's great to be here. Now, you tell the stories of these seven women with such precision and compassion. I've just finished the book and I really felt like I knew each of them and you (sighs) through reading it. And there's so much covered. And there's disordered eating, abuse, desire for a baby, infidelity on both the patient's side and that of partners and parents, bereavement, dishonesty with themselves, others and with you, which you cover Mm. as well, the, the relationship and the dynamic between you and each of them. And and you really followed them from the moment these women entered your life to the moment throughout the journeys that you went on with them and then to the moment they left you and and carried on their journey. And they're all so different from each other. Was it hard to choose which women's stories to tell? Because I imagine, you you know, you've encountered so many. It really was. There was was actually 17 in total that we had to edit down. And that was kind of heartbreaking in itself that we had to limit the stories that could be published from what women want. But the process was that I'd put a kind of notice up in the waiting room to say that I was thinking about writing this book on desire and that if anybody was interested in collaborating with me, they could come and talk to me about it because I thought it would be unethical to ask them whilst in practice in their sessions and they may feel under some pressure to say yes. So I invited them just to approach me if they wanted to work with me. And I was really pleasantly surprised by how many people that did. So we chose seven, seven women that had a kind of universal feeling to desire and women's desire. And I also wanted a kind of intersectional approach. So, you know, we're looking at class and race and gender. um, And that felt important for the book and for me as a practitioner. And when you say we, do you mean you and the editor? Yeah, yeah, me and the editor and and me and the women as well. And of course, I think I'm one of the women too. So there's maybe eight of us in this book. Yeah, that really came across. Like I loved how much you put of your own thoughts in there and your own challenges and what you learnt from every session, really. There's a lot of reflection. I thought that made it really different and it was so much more enriching to read than if it was just their stories with you as a more detached presence. Did you always know that you'd put so much of your own... So, so much of yourself in there to enrich these stories. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really happy that that comes across because um, I think one of the things I really wanted to get across was this more relational, embodied way of working. And, you know, there's a reason why there's not a question point after what women want, as Freud would have done, which was, you know, he asks what women want and, and claims to have been no closer to understanding even after 30 years of inquiry. So... I kind of wanted to be right in there with the women, with my own process, with my own desire. 
um, my own ghosts in the nursery, so to speak. So I'm really pleased that that comes across, that you had a sense of of me uh, as the therapist and of our relationship. You talk about how in your own childhood, because there's a lot of mention, perhaps not with every story, but with a lot of them, about... I suppose feeling invisible as a child, feeling abandoned. There's some stories where there was direct abuse towards the patients when they were children, one of them from her stepfather. Mm. Not physical abuse, but gaslighting and severe psychological abuse. And you talk about how when you were a child, you were made to feel shame about mm. being you know, too sensitive to live, your father yeah. said. And that really poignant moment, um, which you mentioned at the beginning and at the end, in reflection of the book, where you're looking at a fish tank and admiring the beauty of the fish and you're told, really, you know, to stop doing that and that's mm. too sensitive. And do you find that that experience and the fact that you've worked through that and I'm sure are still working through it because we don't really ever stop right. do we do you think that makes you far more able to empathize with patients mm. when they've been through similar I think it certainly helps you know it's a kind of classic saying it takes one to know one but I think maybe this was potentially one of Freud's problems that he was listening through white privilege you know coming from a kind of what I would describe for myself a kind of cocktail of oppression so I was raised in a predominantly white working class home my mum was white working class woman who worked incredibly hard and my father came over from Hong Kong in the 60s so I had these very kind of strong messages from a patriarchal father and a very you know my mum had had a very hard life so my mum's message was um, I want does not get and then my, my dad's message was I was too sensitive to live. So, you know, the, those kind of put the fire out on any desire because to desire would have been, you know, incredibly frightening or, um, or I could feel, well, I did feel that it was shameful to desire and to want. So, was it regarded as risky, do you Yeah, think? yeah, it was risky. And also, you know, as my mum would say, I want does not get and, and don't dare want. Because you'll only be disappointed. Yes, that's so often at the root of it, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. Yeah. So did they? Did you feel that your father's influence was always the stronger one or did your mum sometimes um, influence more in that yeah. sense? Yeah. That's a really good question. I'm not sure who influenced me more. My father left our home when I was nine, so my mother raised us alone. It was me and my two brothers, so... She she really did her best to raise three children alone. But I think I've I've very much aligned with my Chinese heritage, which has been problematic at times, you know, I experienced a lot of racism at school and growing up. So I think they both impacted me greatly in different ways. So, you know, I had my mum saying when I used to go to school, and because I was christened Mei Fung, but she gave me the name of Maxine because she thought that that would be an easier route into life. And then I had my dad stuffing Asian delights into my lunchbox. So again, there were these two very mixed messages and I had to kind of navigate my way through and find my own way in many ways. Well, we ask everyone to bring a few objects in. You don't have yeah. to physically bring all these in. In fact, I'd be really surprised if you <laughs> brought the first one in. But the first object that you've brought, the first place that you've brought to talk about is somewhere to breathe. Mm. Mm. So 
I think we're talking about the photograph of cattle wash we beach, are, aren't yes. we? Yeah, and I called it somewhere to breathe because I was thinking, we often talk about beaches in this podcast. It's really oh, interesting. interesting. And the sea. And I think it means such different things to different people. And I've been thinking about how on a rough day, the mm. sea is so, it's quite, it can be feel quite oppressive and quite overwhelming. And then on a calm day, the beach and the sea can yeah. just feel like you've got all the time in the world. And so I called it somewhere to breathe because I Love thought that. maybe that might, something that the beach gives you. I think that's absolutely spot on, Izzy, because this photograph that I'm thinking about, it was a moment of breath. It was a moment of release because I was with someone at the time who I was very much in love with. And it's a beautiful memory. We're sitting on Cattle Wash Beach and we're eating crab and dumplings and we're both just qualified as therapists. And we were there taking a moment, taking a beat to really acknowledge this journey we've been on together as lovers, as friends, and as now qualified therapists. And it was the most beautiful day. It was it was hot. Um, we were swimming. We were totally at one with each other and with nature. And it's just a moment that I will always remember when I, you know, look at this photograph. It was just a delight. Did you take the photograph or is it like a postcard? It's somebody took it of us. It was actually somebody that was selling um, kind of homemade wares. There was um, jewellery and um, little sculptures and, and they took a picture of us together. Yeah. You talk quite often, I think it's really great, about taking holidays and how that works with your patients and their different reactions to you saying I'm not going to be available for you know a number of weeks mm. um, and how you tell them and well I was surprised at their reactions some of them go okay actually I'm one of them says I'll be happy to take a break from therapy and some of them are furious and yeah. it kind of chimes into perhaps feelings of abandonment from an earlier age why do you think it is so important for us to take that time mm. to breathe and perhaps not to have deadlines and to daydream yeah that lovely daydream that we all need when we're floating in the sea and you know, maybe allowing our minds and our bodies just to kind of be. And I think as therapists, we certainly, you know, I encourage all my supervisees who I train and, and to be taking holidays really every three months because we're, in many circumstances, taking on a secondary traumatisation of people's lives and their stories. So we can be no help to them and to ourselves if we're completely overwhelmed and exhausted. So I'm a great believer in kind of radical self-care. And I think that, you know, sometimes we have to think that rest is a radical act because we, you know, in this busy culture of work, we keep on going, don't we? And, and actually it's so important for our well-being and our ability to be present. Absolutely. I often feel, and I've really worked on this and got a lot better at it, but my children are still quite young and I used to feel this real guilt for mm. putting things in the diary, like going for a walk and not taking my phone or even going to get my nails done or meeting a friend. Or yeah. um, And now I go, no, actually, it's it's quite important. That's like eating, it's nourishment. It really is. Yeah, it's so important. And and just for that, when you've got young children, you know, that contact with, with other adults, with other people to to talk about other things other than what you need to talk to your children and connect with them. So absolutely important. Yeah. And we do fill up our diaries. There's one of the stories, I think it's Kitty, who I want to talk about in a minute, actually, because there's a bit with her on a beach. But she 
fills up her diary and sort of stays really busy. She was sent to boarding school when she was 11. Her parents are going to Asia. They took her brother with them, yeah. left her behind. And I actually cried when I read that bit. And so there was, sad. Yeah, it's, and to think of her, you know, saying, writing to her mum, saying, I'm so lonely, I want to come home, and her mum sending her sweets and toys. Yeah. And I think it's Kitty who fills up her diary, but I think this is present in, in some of the other stories as well, that we can sort of keep going and say, well, I'll do this, I'll do that, you know, I'll perhaps, you know, try and obliterate myself almost through sex or through eating mm. and purging or, you know, through a drinking. And it is hard sometimes, isn't it, to stop and yeah. just be yeah. and have those moments like on the beach. I, th I think it's terrifying for a lot of people because what happens when we are still and we pause is that the feelings rear you know, the losses, the longings for, with Kitty, it was very much about having her days and her diary filled up with sex and shopping and, and relationships and partying because she feared that were she to stop, she could break down. So there was a constant fear of breakdown. And, and what we experience in Kitty's story is the way that she numbs herself is by immersing herself in ice-cold baths and after some time of us trying to figure out what that's about, we discovered that when she was at boarding school, she would wait until all the girls had had their showers and the, the water was cold, and that cold water would numb her. So it was a kind of reenactment in many ways of what she'd learned as an 11-year-old, which is incredibly heartbreaking. And she had disordered eating as well at that she stage, did, didn't yes. she? And was sent home to put on enough weight to then be sent back again. That's so right. I think I understand how these coping mechanisms then just become things that run alongside mm. people's lives. Did it take her time to make that connection back to the mm. cold showers? It did, actually. And, and it did for me also because I didn't know that she was taking those cold showers. And it wasn't until, you know, I really inquired about what she was feeling in the numbing as an adult of her body in the bath. And then she actually made the link when she said, oh... I remember, you know, that when I was 11 and 12, 13, I would do the same thing. So sometimes it can take a while because there's been so much denial or dissociation even from that memory to, to protect, you know, the mind and body. Of course, yeah. because on paper it starts with the cold showers and then it progresses, but I think it proves how important that dynamic is between therapist and patient and how yeah. important it is to have that time. And when my friend got therapy and they said it would be six sessions only, wow. I just thought, I felt like, how do you know six sessions would be enough? I think these sorts of discoveries are made and you go, where did that come from? Exactly right. And I think this is why, you know, I'm, I'm very keen on us re-evaluating what CBT can do. I mean, I think it's great in terms of getting to a core issue straight away, but we we don't really look at, you know, it's like kind of ripping a plaster off. It's, you know, once we really look at the wound, we find that there's far more deeper problems. And so six sessions is really just note-taking, really, in my opinion. There's a moment I wanted to talk about Kitty on the beach. So she is going to celebrate her mother's birthday. She's got a difficult relationship with her father. And her mother, I think, for me, to a slightly lesser extent. Yeah. 
but she's not having a great time and she goes and she has sex with a stranger on the beach yeah and she finds it easier to connect with him than mm. her family who she's with and it reminded me of after my father died, I found myself able to talk to the hairdresser so much more easily than my closest friends who were asking me, how are you, how are you all the time? And I think that's probably... Is it because there's less at stake with I the stranger? So. Was that the case for Kitty as well, do you think? They don't really know your name. They're not going to ask anything Yeah, it's a bit like those confession booths, yeah. isn't it? You know, and in a way, as therapists, we're in this room. It's a very small room that I practice from in central London and... If we think about the act of when somebody comes and, and unveils and shares their deepest, darkest, joyous experiences of life and then leave, and then they are freed from what they're carrying around, I think there's something, as you say, it's not so heavily weighted because potentially families could help hold these things against us or they could make judgments and what we hope with whether it's a hairdresser or a therapist or, you know, somebody who works in a shop where it's more transient, it can often feel a lot safer, I think. I yeah. think you're absolutely right. And I hadn't put therapist in that category. I'd been thinking about perhaps it not being right to confide in those people that maybe you need to be brave and talk to. But I think actually comfort and wisdom and... um I suppose an opening up yeah. can be gained from an interaction with a stranger. They don't have to know everything about That's right. You. That's right. And and maybe it also could give confidence if you try it out with a few people that are not attached, you know, in kind of family or relationships or, or, or good friends. And you see what that person's response is. It's almost like a trial ground for maybe taking it to somebody else, potentially. Or maybe not, <laughs> you know. It's... Yeah, it, no, you're right. Because the problem is the family dynamic, even if you don't realise. I'm sure there are times that my sister or my mum have said something to me and I think I'm reacting neutrally. Yeah. But that dynamic that's always been there has to come into play. Yeah, because we're attached to these people, aren't we? We're going to have responses and feelings and protection for, for the people we love. Do you ever wish with a patient that there didn't have to be that essential... I don't want to say distance because I don't feel like in the book there is a, a spiritual distance mm. in that dynamic. Mm. I feel like you very much regard it as two people going on a journey together yeah. and that you're discovering perhaps as much as them in a completely Absolutely. different way. Absolutely. But do you ever think, oh, I wish I'd just met you... <laughs> It's, of course, you know, it's the limitation of the therapeutic relationship. But of course, those boundaries are what keep the work safe, of course. But, you know, I'm human like like anybody else. Of course, I feel, gosh, I wish I could do more or... But I don't know how then effective that would be were it taken out of that boundary. So there's a moment in the book when um, I'm in the supermarket and I see one of my patients and she's got a shopping trolley full of food and... She can't quite believe that she's seen me outside of the consulting room, you know, and so she abandons the trolley. And and that has been the case for quite a few of my patients, that they can't really see me existing outside of that room. They need to keep me in there as much as I try to be, you know, very equal and, and human with them. So I think it would it would probably overwhelm some of the patients yeah, as it well. Yeah, it's too... It's 
it's the relationship is fragile and robust at the same time, That's isn't it. it? Yeah. You don't want to blur those boundaries because maybe it would just all fall down. Yes. It's necessary to have that. It really made me laugh that bit because I think uh, <laughs> she said, I didn't think you ate or slept. Or <laughs> there was one, I think there's one moment I discuss in there. One of my patients imagines that I never leave the room and that I have a pull out bed. <laughs> and, um, you know, we had, uh, obviously that was early days and as time went on, she could, you know, except that I had a life outside of those four walls. But it, it kept her safe for that initial period until trust was built between yeah, us. Of course, of yeah. course, because it takes time. It really does. Well, let's move on to your next object, and this is something to treasure. Mm, yeah, so I have in mind my sons. He's my only child, he's my only son. He's 19 now, and he used to have a little um, wooden duck that he would pull along as a kind of companion. And I chose this object because it's the one toy that I kind of remember that Dexter always had. And and I've still got it. It's on my shelf in my office and I still look up at it. And he recently left home, so currently in the empty nest. So that kind of reminds me of him. But I think it's also because I never thought that I would be a mum probably because of some of my ghosts in the nursery. I didn't quite know how I would do it or, you know, all these pressures that we experience as mothers, the idealised mother or the the good and bad. And I think we become very much a kind of dumping ground for society's dissatisfaction or political failings. So I think as mothers, you know, we come against a lot of hate, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. So I wondered how I was ever going to live up to that. But then I fell in love hard and fast with Dexter's father Um, and he was born and it's just been the most beautiful experience, not without its struggles. I would say that I'm a very protective mother due to my own history. I'd say that my mothering has teeth, but it's been transformative in terms of me coming home to my body and me coming home to a relationship that is unconditionally loving. Do you think he likes seeing the duck yeah. up on your shell? I think he likes to think that I'm holding him in mind. We talk quite frequently. He's at art college and I think it's comforting for him to know that that's up there, that duck. Yeah, I think it's probably quite comforting for him. I think it's really good to have these things on display yeah. rather than in a box uh, if... If the meaning is imbued with love and Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about one of the most difficult story I found to read, actually, and I'm not surprised that it was at the end of the book, because I suppose in a sense, like therapy, you've gained our trust as a a reader and we're ready to hear a more, I, I think, the most harrowing story of a mother who's lost her son to suicide. The thing that stays with me about that story is the image hmm. um, of Monty's toy, of his toy rabbit. Little rabbit, yeah. 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 Um, because I think toys, toys are, I mean, I'm sure there must have been loads of research done into this and you'll know much better than me, but toys are, are so important to so children sometimes. Important. It's yeah. like their worlds are so small and yeah. this toy really kind of captures yeah. everything and they might whisper secrets to the toy and they can't go anywhere without it and they they might throw it in a fit of rage and um I, I really was struck mm. by that image of mm. Monty's rabbit. Yeah. Toys witness 
the growth of a child, don't they? But I think you're right. Children share secrets. They're also what we call in therapeutic terms transitional objects. So if they go to camp or if they go to stay with a friend, they'll take this toy with them and they're the security of home, aren't they? And um, you know, so I used to have a blanket um, with a kind of rabbit head on it and I would take it everywhere with me. So they're so important as attachment objects. Yeah, and the smell and the texture yes. of them as well. Yeah. Yes. My sister-in-law used to rub, when she was going away, she would rub her toy on her mother's neck, you know, to oh, absorb the perfume and her smell. And yeah. um, I sort of always, that's always struck me because I think that's just so lovely. And then she felt, you know, yeah. she had enough there to, so to be able to be away for a little while. Yeah. Mm. There are two other rabbits in the book. Early on, there is a rabbit called Barbara and who's Terry's rabbit. And that's, that's right. her story. She's someone um, struggling with her sexuality. Yeah. And then there's a rabbit called Lettuce, who's Kitty's rabbit. And both of those rabbits mean an awful lot to the women and then they die or they they go away and then they don't know what's happened to them. Why do you feel like the loss of those pets is still so significant for both those women, Mm. even though it was such a long time ago? Yeah, they really were. I think for Terry with Barbara... Because she was being raised in a very violent home, she was queer, her mother was very violent towards her, was very homophobic, which is why she came to therapy. Um, She was a kind of runaway bride that was on the brink of, of getting married and was finding herself in bars and attracted to women. And it was really about her coming to therapy to figure this out. And to look at the uh, the homophobia that was being slung at her, particularly from from her mother. And I think Barbara was an attachment figure when her father left home and her father had given her this rabbit to, you know, as he left the family home. And so there was an, a double attachment in that Terry was a, attached to Barbara because she was of comfort and she would hold her and care for her. She would care for the rabbit the way that she wished to be cared for. And then there was also the attachment from her father who was now absent. And then, you know, her mother lets Barbara out and she escapes and she is lost and she's bereft. And when she shared this story with me, she told me it as if it were a dream. And then what we discover when we're able to get really vulnerable with one another is that the dream was actually a reality. Yeah. It's, Heartbreaking. It's the betrayal. Mm. Um, and that I, I imagine that her whole reality was shaken because yeah. the thing that had always provided her so much comfort had then just, just disappeared gone, and gone. Uh, yeah. deliberately. Yeah. I love mm. how honest you are in the book. And there are specifics. It's not a kind of general, you know, I, I felt this or I felt that. It's completely honest. You make yourself vulnerable and you, mm. you make discoveries about yourself and... There's a story about Tia, who's a biracial woman um, who comes to you and things come to the surface from Mm. your own past. You talk about how earlier in the history of therapy, there was that detachment Mm. um, from therapists, that that sort of, I suppose, the stereotypical image of someone lying on a couch and streams of consciousness and um, the man in the white coat. That's right. Let's face it. Um, (laughs) No eye contact. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Why has that changed? Is it just that, has society changed or has therapy changed? It changed or both? I think a multitude of things, but thank God it has, yeah. is it? <laughs> so my, my first training was actually psychodynamic, so it was more classically trained and we read Freud. I think we've changed because 
roles have changed, language has changed. We've wanted to feel more connected in an embodied way. There is a couch in my practice, but I encourage people to sit opposite me to level out power so we can gaze at one another and we can make eye contact. And I did find that when I was practicing in a more classical way, it really wasn't landing with people that had survived traumatic life events. It was very isolating for them to not have the gaze, to not have someone witness their suffering and their pain. You know, someone sitting at the end of a couch taking notes with no eye contact when you're sharing trauma, it's so disconnecting and so lonely. I also imagine it's easy to carry on skirting around things. If someone makes you hold, not makes you hold their gaze, but if someone is kind of gently insisting, I suppose, yeah. that you that it's better for you to make eye contact, I think it makes you more vulnerable. Yeah. Whereas if you can kind of gaze up at the ceiling... I think you are able to dance around mm. things a bit more because you don't, you're not having that connection. That's it. And you can escape into alternate worlds and thinking and it's more heady, you know, whereas when you're faced with one another as two humans, you, you have to be in it together. And that's, that's the part of the work that I really love. And it can be harder, can't Absolutely. It? And exhausting. Yeah. And challenging. There's a wonderful phrase by, he's a child developmentalist, his, his name's um, Daniel Stern. And uh, I followed him when I was studying to become an analyst. And he says that if we hold the gaze of the eyes of another person for longer than 11 seconds, we're usually going to make love fall in love or fight. <laughs> Which I think is wonderful. <laughs> and so, you know, you and I are here looking across, but, you know, we'll notice that our eyes dart and go. And, and But, you know, in those really intense moments with a patient, when they're sharing something really deep and intimate, there can be a feeling of love. And I think that this is something that's not really talked about in therapy, that we shouldn't feel love for our patients. But my patients affect me deeply. And, and there I, is a moment where one says, I love you. There is. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is a beautiful moment. You talk about the protocol being that the gift thing is a grey area, isn't it? If, if one of your patients offers you a gift, it's up to you, but that you'd have to just be careful and think yeah. about I think someone saying, I love you is a gift. It is, it really is. And sometimes these words are incredibly difficult for people to express that have not felt love or have felt they've been loved themselves. So it's a great risk. And it's very desirous in many ways. So of course, I'm encouraging those words and that language because there's an honesty and an authenticity to it. And we do our best to really hold that that feeling and, and explore it and look at it and be respectful of it at all times. Um, yeah. Well, let's move on to your next object. And this is something you can't throw away. <laughs> <laughs> I thought long and hard about this because I kept coming back to this answer and I was quite nervous about sharing this, maybe because it's a box of rejection letters and I, I, I'd like us to talk more about rejection in a way because I think it's very humbling, I think it keeps us grounded, it, it shows us that the, the road is long and slow and steady for me win, wins the race and I have a box, it's quite full, actually, of rejection letters in all aspects of life. So boyfriends, girlfriends, um, job interviews, book proposals. And it keeps me very grounded. 
and I go back and read these letters or emails, you know, that I've printed out. And it just keeps me very humble. It keeps me focused. Why do you think that is? I think it attempts to level out the ego. Yeah. <sighs> yes. You feel vulnerable when you're rejected, don't you? You do. You, I'm thinking about when I first graduated from drama school and we used to send out 50 CVs a week and get all these rejection letters because wow. nothing was on email then. And we used to pin up all the rejection letters. Wow. I've not thought about this for years. On the kitchen wall, and wow. I was living with loads of actors and we used to pin them all up and we did used to write horrible things on them. <laughs> but... <laughs> Throw darts at them. <laughs> but I... It was really, strangely, it spurred me on. I was so determined to do it. And weirdly enough, it spurred me on to see that yeah. wall of rejection letters every yeah. day in a way that if I had won anything, any awards or putting yeah. them up, wouldn't have done. Right. There's something about rejection letters that it feels like it releases you into more of an open state I think than so, looking yeah. at a cabinet of trophies yeah yeah I think there's also something about that when we're rejected we have to reach out Mm. we have to cry we have to um ask for support talk to people about how that rejection feels and I think there's something incredibly connecting when we can gaze at each other and mirror that back to each other because we've all had rejections we've all failed you know and I think there's something about the vulnerability in saying I need help can you help me with this? I'm feeling really low today. You know, I had a lot of that when I was a mum early days with Dexter and I was struggling and didn't know what to do and had to reach out and say, I really feel like I'm failing this and and, and reach into my village of, of other mothers. So and sometimes it's the people you least expect who really help is. you. Yeah. And yeah. I think they always get something from it. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. I'm thinking about when I get rejection and I even count if I'm writing a script or something and someone gives me some harsh notes on it, I go through a feeling, I think probably like a microcosm of the stages of grief. I don't know if I quite believe in all those stages, but, you know, at first I feel really angry and I think, you're wrong. You know, it's a a perfect script. And then quite soon (laughs) I go, okay, yeah, no, it is. (laughs) Maybe it's not perfect. And then Then hit the grief and the denial and all of those stages. Yeah. And even when I do feel that anger, I go, you know, Izzy, you're going to feel different tomorrow, but let, okay, sit with that anger. It feels horrible. It really does. It feels raw. Even with something like that, a script that, you know, compared to some much bigger stuff that people can go through in life it's nothing but you still feel that you've made yourself vulnerable you've gone this is the best I can do at this time and someone's gone well it ain't good exactly how are you on the opposite side how do you feel if you get a successful letter because I don't kind of quite believe it you know I kind of think this isn't for me or they must have got it wrong I I sort of think yeah that's that's a really good I think actually if I've worked really hard and I feel like I've gone through rejection to get to that place for the piece of yeah. work, then I can take the compliment Great. much better. Yeah. You're whooping yeah. the air. Kind of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then it's always like, right, back to the grindstone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I read your objects and one of them was rejection letters, there's something that happens in Ruth's story and it kind of chimed with me when I read about the box of rejection letters. And also I'm really glad that you brought it in, feeling a bit nervous about it, because I think... It's really interesting to talk about Mm. because you are risking 
when you put something out there and you are risking rejection and then the rejection happens and you have to sit with it. But there's a bit where Ruth says, and Ruth is someone who is experiencing disordered eating, got a lot going on, works in the supermarket. Mm. She's really having some quite big struggles, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. She's very angry. Yes, yeah. She's raised by her mother. She has a, a little sister as well. And her stepfather enters the dynamics who becomes incredibly abusive and, and, and gaslights her. And she writes in a diary and he steals the diary and exposes her. And he and gives her the diary initially, doesn't yes, he? Yes, he does, yeah. It's, it's just the most... And he's a police officer. That's right. Yeah. Real abuse of power. So we look at that. And Ruth actually chose the title for her story, which is My Body, My Rules. And there's a bit towards the end where she says that she's starting to feel less angry and then she corrects herself and she says she's starting to feel less scared of being angry and I underlined that and I thought I really want to talk about that and for me that's connected with the rejection letters. I think anger still gets a really tough rap where women are concerned in terms of their desire as well. If we feel angry we are shamed or um, we're told that we're hysterical and um, you know we're given all these notes misogynist notes that anger is not acceptable and I think this is why so much more research has been done around self-harm because the anger is projected inwards as opposed to out to the world and what my role as a therapist is to kind of give that anger some some breath maybe on a beach again (laughs) and and to really be able to withstand hearing a patient's anger and that's what we needed to do with Ruth because She had a lot to be angry about. I think it's okay to be angry with a rejection letter as well. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, Yeah, it is. But why is that correction so important? She feels less angry and then she says she's feeling less scared of being angry. Yeah. Are you still surprised after 15 years of practising about the fear that women hold and the boundaries that fear can place on their lives? For sure. I was thinking just before coming to talk with you today how I feel that desire is still on trial. And we would think that women could talk more openly about desire. But what I found in writing this book is still how challenging it is for women to step forward and say they desire this, they want this. And of course, we're not just talking about sexual desire. We're talking about all the nuances of desire to find a home, to have a body that we feel at home in, to have a family. They're kind of universal ones, but still a lot of shame, still a lot of struggle to to make desire an action. So I have been surprised at that because I'm talking about it every day in my practice but obviously when the book comes out into the world and we start having conversations I've been surprised around the fear of women to name that their desire their wants and needs as I said I did cry when I read about Kitty being left at boarding school and then there's another bit uh, where Terry, who has the first story, where she feels so lonely as a child that she wants her head lice to stay. Mm. And you talk about countertransference. Mm. And now, am I right in thinking that's where you experience their pain? Could you tell us a bit, mm. a bit, a bit more about countertransference? Yes, yeah, a kind of therapy jargon, isn't there? If we think, I tend to think of it as a, you know, in a kind of relay race, if we think about a baton. So, Let's take, for example, Terry, who's relaying this story of not wanting her headlights to leave her. And 
as she's relaying this story, I'm feeling incredibly hurt, upset, sad. But her feelings don't match the story she's telling because she's slightly in denial or dissociated from those feelings. So my counter-transference is that I'm holding that baton for her until she's ready to have those feelings. And when that time feels right, I might just gently hand it back to her. And I might even say to her, I'm aware that I'm feeling incredibly sad in hearing this, but I don't see that this registers for you. How are you feeling? And just that invitation then can open up an opportunity for her to explore how she's feeling, how she felt, how it's not been safe to feel those things. So yeah. that's what countertransference is. Do you give yourself space after sessions? Um, do you really value yeah. that time for reflection? Because if you're experiencing this mm. um, river of emotions, I imagine you do need time. Mm. I'm not a practitioner that sees patients back to back. I usually give at least an hour in between each patient so I can just be with the session before. I have a lot of plants in my practice, so I'll go and tend those or I might just daydream or gaze out the window. I might make some tea, but I very much try to be as present to my body and to what I've just learned and heard and witnessed so I can make my notes and be ready for the next patient in an hour's time. OK, well, um, let's move to your next object, and this is something to listen to. Hmm. Yeah, I love this question because um, it, it kind of enabled me to think about my, my beloved um, late mother-in-law, Fran Landersman. She was coined the phrase of the grandmother of hip, and she was incredibly influential to me, both as poet, lyricist, uh, jazz enthusiast. And me and Dexter used to go around there every Sunday. And, and she wrote a song called Spring Can Really Hang You Up The Most. And it's the most beautiful song. It's kind of drenched in desire. There's melancholia. It's beautifully lyrical. And I have so many fond memories of her playing this. Um, on the radiogram when me and Dexter used to go around and I still play it. My favourite um, version of it is the um, Ella Fitzgerald version. Me and Dexter play it a lot still and listen to it and think of her very fondly. We miss her a great deal. There's something that this song, which I love, um, and I really like the Ella Fitzgerald version the best as well, um, and another song that you mentioned, which is Funny Valentine mm. by Cher Baker, which I also love. Um, that's from Mariana's story. There's something melancholic about both of them. It, for me, both of them kind of have both sides of the coin yeah. within them. Yeah. Um, the light and the shade. In another part of the book, you talk about beauty and terror, yeah. how they have to coexist. And for me, both of those songs hold mm. the beauty and the terror together. And there's also space within them. They're not hurried songs. Mm -hmm. The lyrics really have time to breathe. Yeah, that's a beautiful description, Izzy. Do you value space within mm. the, the space within the book for the reader to absorb what's happening? And it feels like it's so wonderfully paced. It, the book never feels hurried. And the patients, I can imagine, have that space and have that silence if needs be mm. is that something of mm. great value to you 
Definitely. I think without it, I couldn't practice the way that I do. There's a Chinese phrase, which is ma, which represents the space in between, which is when you're pruning a bonsai tree, the way that we prune is to allow light in. And that's where growth lies, when the light hits the bark or hits the leaves. And I think without that space, we don't process, we don't feel as much as we maybe need to. And I think that's what jazz does for me as well, because there's something kind of erratic and brilliant and creative, but there's also something slow and thoughtful and, you know, the pause on the My Funny Valentine. It's just so poignant on that pause. So, yeah, space is really important for me as, as a human and as a therapist. And taking breaks, I suppose, having that space on yeah. the beach, having the space to just be and not have any work stuff in and yeah. eat yeah. and drink and That's relax right. and swim. Yeah. Just to be present to that moment. Yeah. Yeah. You write about how occasionally you just know from the beginning that it's not going to work mm. at a first meeting and that, you know, one of them sticks out to me, which is when a patient shows signs of racism very early on. Mm. Um, and then I... I assume the converse happens as well, where yeah. you and you talk about, you know, that the first time they contacted me, I could hear something in her voice that made me want to, yeah. to help. And what do you think it is that makes that connection? I think it's partly to do with experience now. So 20 years into the work, I have a sense of who I might be effective with. And it's not necessarily that I don't like that person or I don't want to work with them. It's It's really, am I the best fit for them? So with the patient I think we're talking about that came with very racist language. Early days, I might have taken that patient on, you know, because I had a kind of desire to want to tackle and, and, and work with everybody. Whereas now, you know, 20 years on, I wonder if I'm the right person now. So I think it's a feeling. It's based very much on how I feel with this person. It's an energy. It's an essence. Um, and I think that that's changed over the years. You know, my preference to working with certain people has definitely changed over the years. It has become more intersectional. I don't think that now, my supervisor used to call it the arrogance of youth. When we start out as therapists, we, we think we can work with everybody, but of course we can't. Not effectively, anyway. It's exactly like that with comedy. You do every... Right. I used to go up and do working men's clubs and I'd always have really horrible gigs. And yeah. now I think, why did I ever do that for 50 quid? You right. know, I didn't make any money. Just sort of almost wanted to experience absolutely everything. Yes. And perhaps that is necessary at the beginning of right. lots of creative careers. And I put therapy under that. I think therapy yeah. is extremely creative. Mm. You're, you're working together. Mm. Maybe it has to be like that in a way for you to find out what you do want to do. Mm. And I think it helps grow some resilience as well, doesn't it? And we kind of get to know ourselves, where our edges are, where our boundaries are, where our, you know, where some of the joy is as well, because, you know, you've got to enjoy, if you're doing a comedy show, you've got to enjoy your audience. And, and same as I've got to enjoy the person I'm working with. And I think we maybe just get a little bit more confident with who we are and who we can work with. Yeah. Yeah. You write about how to want and to desire and to love are actions, mm. they're verbs. Um, and it makes a, a great difference to me that you frame it like that. It makes me think of a really powerful stance rather yeah. than a passive one. Is that your intention? Yeah. I wanted 
what women want to be a call to arms for women to desire their way. Desire isn't fate, it's intention. And as soon as we can start talking about our desire, own it, claim it, want it enough, then it becomes an action. If we just think that these things are going to happen to us fatalistically, we're going to be really disappointed. So I love to frame it, similar to Bell Hooks when she said love is an action. I like to think that desire is an action. I love it because it's open, it's alive. Yeah. It's not daydream and go, oh, one day I'll I'll learn how to yeah. do this or I'll go here or I'll... It's like, get up and do let's it. Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's work it. together. And let's do it together. Yeah. yeah. Well, that yeah. comes across so well. It's such a warm book. It's so compassionate mm. and it's written from the heart with great detail I just loved it and as I said I'm, thank you I've already got a list of people I'm oh, going to send it I'm to I'm really so, touched thank yeah, you so, so much it's fantastic and it's a real honour as well to bear witness to these women's stories I think it, that it's all so sensitively and beautifully put together thank you so much for speaking to us today thank you as it's been an absolute pleasure oh, thank you God. Well, thank you for listening wherever you are. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. If you can, please leave us a nice review. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or see who else we've spoken to, you can head to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts, where you'll find an alphabet of the book world from Dolly Alderton to Benjamin Zephaniah talking about their writing. I'm Izzy Sutty. I'll see you next time. <laughs>